0: Thank you so much for coming down for the day. Just tell us what you do as your day job. Um, is that working? Yes. Good. Um, uh, you assume, though, Marcus, that it was acoustic
1: that made the singing better and not the fact that Dawn and I have joined to you. Ah! Today, uh-huh. Which I think might be connected. That may well be it. What that can I say? Um, so, we're involved at Trinity Church Islington, which is uh, a plant from St Hans in 2007, so we've been there um, for 16 um, years. Um, and uh, it's a a church congregation that meets in the afternoon on a Sunday um, uh, in N1, close to Angel Tube, Mm -hmm. Um, and we've just announced this week that we're moving on next year, so...
0: Ah, what are you moving on to? As in they're moving on, not the whole church? Not the whole church, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, So Dora and I are moving on uh, to uh, a place called End. so three churches uh, up, up in that part of the world, up in Enfield, Mm -hmm. are hoping to plant into a building that's been closed for four four years um, and start a new congregation there. Um, So we're going up there as church planters uh, from the middle of next year.
0: Tell us what you did before you got into church work. Yeah,
1: so when Marcus first knew me, which was in 1823 or something, then then I was a medical student, and then uh, I worked as a surgeon for a few years. I trained at Bart's Hospital... Um, in, in the middle of London uh, and uh, worked as a senior house officer for a few years and then um, left that and stepped aside. I wasn't struck off. I have to say that to people just in case <laughs> they yeah.
0: So, surgeon, steady hand.
1: Yeah, yeah I like to think that. About, uh, yeah, I got a bit more shaky in my head.
0: How you came to faith in Christ? What's the story there? Yeah,
1: so I grew up in a family uh, where my dad wasn't a Christian, my mum was a Christian, but it was very quiet. And, um, uh, and so she used to pray for us, I've no doubt. Um, uh, so I've got a brother and a sister. And uh, whether for uh, Christian reasons or just to get rid of us during the summer, we were sent off on summer camps uh, with what was then called the Crusaders, now called Omen Saints. And that was where, on a, uh, a camp in the Isle of Wight, I first heard the gospel. Um, and... Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing, really, um, in that um, uh, my brother, my sister, and I, I, th- I, I imagine through my mother's prayers, um, all came to faith through sort of friends or independent means, and humanly speaking. And then uh, my brother is now a missionary um, in Africa, um, and I'm in ministry, and my sister for a while was a, was a youth worker. So um, actually, even though Jesus wasn't really spoken about in the home... Uh, I think through my mum's prayers, we all came to faith and, and are now serving in, in some way in Christian ministry.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to hand over to you now. So the Bibles you've got on the chairs are NIVs. Uh, Jeremy's speaking from the ESV. If you want to follow that on your phone instead, they're pretty similar, I think. But um, yeah, over to you. Thank you.
1: Brilliant. Thank you again for having having us here. It's, it's fantastic to be with you. And the relationship between um, uh, Trinity Church Islington and the barge goes way back. And we do pray for you guys and, and, and we'd love you to be praying for us too. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. And can I pass on all the prayers and best wishes from Trinity Church Islington. Um, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, you, uh, you, you may well find it useful to have this sheet in front of you. Uh, it's just inside the front cover uh, where it says um, Hebrews 11, 1 to 22. Um, I'm going to read that in um, in just a second. Let me tell you where we're going to go today in the two talks that we have ahead of us. The first talk we've called Faith That Believes in the Invisible. Uh, that's the first talk from verses 1 to 22 of Hebrews 11. Faith in what we can't see. And uh, believing in the, vis- in, in, in the invisible, in a world which is all about the visual, is difficult. We, we live in a culture where everything has to be seen. Uh, people uh, don't run a news story, so I'm told by a journalist friend, unless it has a picture that goes with it. We live in a world of Instagram and YouTube and television. And 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 we're going to think about faith in in what we can't see in a world that's very visual. And then in our second talk, we're going to think about faith that endures into the future, faith that runs the course, faith that lasts. That's the second half of Hebrews uh, eleven. And 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 of course, we live in a, a culture that's very immediate, which is all about the now. You have Amazon Instant, Now TV, twenty-four hour news. Uh, the the one-minute manager, if you read that? Everything has to happen straight away. It has to have instant impact. And we want to have faith that lasts the course in that sort of culture. We've got plenty of uh, ground to cover. Um, so I hope the handout will help you as we uh, go through Hebrews 11. Why don't I pray, and then I'll read that section of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us uh, that, that it's uh, living and active like a double-edged sword and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And so I pray, Father, that your word will be living and active in us this morning. Please help us to focus in on your voice. Please help us to be teachable. And we ask, Father, we would be prepared to change our lives in your strength and in line with your ways. And we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but it'll be fairly similar in the NIV. Let me read it. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Every month or so, I go for a walk with a teenager in our church. It's an opportunity for him to ask me any questions that he has. Um, let's call him Ted. Uh, he doesn't miss a thing, Ted. And his, and his questions are absolutely brilliant. They're quite theologically penetrating. They really make me think. And uh, he had a particular question not that long ago that he wanted to ask me. And it went like this. Um, Jeremy, he said, how is it possible to believe in a God that I can't see?" What, what, what's that about? I'm, I'm not sure I answer very well. But he's, uh, he's a scientist, is Ted. So I thought I'd try and blind him with a bit of science. So, so I said to him, Ted, the universe is 96% dark matter. And, and even with telescopes, we can only see one in 100 million of all the stars that exist. And, and when it comes to the ele- electromagnetic spectrum then our eyes can pick up 0.0035% of all of the electromagnetic waves that are bouncing around us all the time in in the universe. But the thing is that scientists tell us that there are good reasons for knowing that they are there. In fact, for a physicist, I don't know if there are any physicists here today, There, there may well be. For a physicist, everything that is most real about the universe is unseen. Do you not think that's interesting? And so in the same way, I I carried on warming to my theme with Ted. In the same way for us as Christians, there are things like creation and and the Bible and people's lives that are changed. We've got all kinds of good reasons for knowing that God is there, even though we can't see him. And Ted thought for a while and he said, you forgot to mention the resurrection. Um, That happened and and we can't see it, but we know that it's true. Ah, yes, I said, yeah, good point. I I probably should have mentioned the resurrection as well. I mean, like, you know, Ted doesn't miss a thing. But just like Ted, we might find it quite hard to trust in something that we can't see. That would be a natural thing. There's so little to see in Christianity. Has that ever struck you? I mean, just imagine, here's the thought experiment. Imagine that that, um, uh, that Marcus and Lena made a, a time machine, and we could go back to the first temple, to the Temple of Solomon, and uh, we'd sort of walk into the temple, and, and we'd just find a guy, let's call him Zadok, and we sort of bundle him into the time machine, and we'd bring him back to your barge away day. What do you think you'd make of it? I, I mean, it's a nice building. Uh, Marcus, I can understand your you know, mild envy. It, it, but it's not the temple, is it? I mean, it, there isn't really very much to see compared with what you would have seen if you walked into Solomon's temple. It would all seem so ordinary. I mean, there's, there's no animal sacrifice. There's there's no altar. There's no lampstands. There, there are no priests. And, 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 and there's no temple, actually. What do you think he would make of it? Do you think Jadok would be impressed? In In fact, even... Even among religions of the 21st century, there's so little that you can see of Christianity compared with other religions. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we don't wear burqas or or, or skull caps. We don't wear turbans or robes. We don't have ornate temples. We we don't have statues, at least in, in churches like ours. We don't have to travel to Mecca. We're just ordinary people in ordinary clothes in an ordinary building using ordinary language. At least, mostly. There's so little to see of Christianity. What do you need to do, church? A book and a cup. It's very light on equipment, isn't it? Certainly the Romans thought so. Do you know they called the first century Christians atheists? And, And the reason that they did so was because they could see none of the trappings that they thought should go along with their religion. None of the clothes and ceremony... That they thought that they thought should be part of sort of ancient Roman belief, that there was so little to see. They thought that Christians were atheists. And it seems like that was a problem too for Jews in the first century. That's why we have the book of Hebrews. Um, all the way through the book of Hebrews, we, we don't know who it was written by. But we can tell a little bit about the people that it was written to. Um, it was written to Jewish people who'd turned their back on the religion of, of their families and they become Christians. And, and all the way through, the writer is addressing this question, have you made a terrible mistake? Um, the, the people that he was writing to or that the author was addressing Wondering if they'd done the right thing, you see, in turning from Judaism to, to Christianity. Because they'd abandoned all the rituals and all the religious equipment which they'd grown up with, which was part of the Jewish faith, for an invisible Christianity. And they were starting to think, just like Zadok might, is this, is this real? I don't know, maybe you've sometimes wondered that yourself. Maybe you started coming along to the barge quite recently and... Uh, people have told you at, at this church that there's a God out there, and that He wants to speak to you, and that He's got a big plan for the universe, and and that you can be part of that. That you can listen to His voice and accept the offer that He's making to you of of complete forgiveness, of a fresh start, of all all of your wrongdoing forgiven, because Jesus has has died in in your place, and 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 then one day you're going to be. In heaven, with him. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, is this just some castle in the air? Is this just some crazy story? What? I, these are ideas, but, but I can't see them. It sort of seems to make sense, but is it actually real? I don't know if that's what you're thinking. Well, the book of Hebrews says that all these religious rituals in the Old Testament, which seemed so solid you know, the altar and, and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, they were only actually shadows of what was going to come. And, and that the reality was always heaven-centred. That's the, that's the centre of gravity for God's purposes. Centred on heaven. Three diagrams that i put very briefly um, on, the, uh, on the handout just there. Let me explain those. And they summarise some of the big moves that the writer to the Hebrews has made in chapters 1 to 10 of, of his book. Three diagrams. The first diagram is all about Jesus. Um, he came lower than the angels. He becomes like a human being, just like you and me. And he dies on the cross. And, and, and this is the sort of trajectory which has been set in Psalm 8. And, and it's described in Hebrews chapter 2. And it says that Jesus comes down, 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 lower than the angels, and and then he's raised up to heaven, and now he's sitting at the right hand of God. And so that's where the center of gravity is for Christianity. It's heaven-centered, where Jesus is. That second diagram is a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, Maybe you know a little bit about the tabernacle. It was a tent, which is described in in the book of Exodus that the people of God used for 400 years or so before they came to Jerusalem and built a temple. And, and it was the place that you went to, to meet with, to meet with God. And, and at the back, you probably can't see because it's, it's written in quite small writing, but right at the back is the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Uh, but now the book of Hebrews says that's gone, and now the Holy of Holies is in heaven. Uh, The tabernacle was just a foretaste. It was just a shadow. So this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so there there was the one tent, now we have a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by... Means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And we find out in verse 24, that is heaven. He goes into heaven itself, which is like a holy of holies. He goes into God's presence on our behalf. And so the, the picture is of the tabernacle. If you can imagine the tabernacle here, it's as if it's been sort of flipped up on its end and become massive. So the Holy of Holies, which, which you would go through into the Holy of Holies, if, if, you, if you're a priest, is, is now in heaven. Jesus has gone all the way through to the Holy of Holies, which is now in heaven. And so that is where the center of gravity is. It's all centered on heaven now. And then the third diagram is all about us. Can you see that that arrow with confidence? And that comes in chapter 10, verse 19. Why don't you have a look at that? Chapter 10, verse 19. This is where the the whole of the first part of Hebrews is heading, really. It it talks about um, Jesus. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near... With a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's all become heaven centred. Centred on heaven. We can approach God full of confidence because of Jesus. We hold fast to the confession of our hope. And we hold fast with something called faith. So let's dive into Hebrews 11. And you'll see the two headings on the sheets. Well, what is faith that believes in the invisible? Well, firstly, it is faith which believes God's promises. Faith which believes God's promises. Um, have you noticed people often talk about faith as a, sort of, as a, thing, in its, a thing in itself? Um, if, if you know what I mean. As everyone said to you, oh, I wish I could have a faith like yours. That must be really nice. Um, as if sort of Hindus and, and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs all share something called faith which other people just don't seem to generate. Um, they're, they're special people who belong to faith communities. If, if you're lucky enough to have it, then it's yours to enjoy. It must be really nice. And, and, and Richard Dawkins is right to point out, actually, that faith like that can be similar to belief in fairies at the bottom of your garden. And, 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 and faith is a kind of credulity. It, it, it's that you're somehow gullible enough to, 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 to believe in things that, that might not actually be true. But the point is this. Faith is not about whether you believe, it's about who you believe in. It's about trusting someone who's reliable, and whether you can take them at their word. So faith is a reasonable response to someone who is trustworthy. Let me say that again. Faith is a reasonable response to someone who is trustworthy. And that's why the Book of Hebrews has already said so much about about the Word of God, because that's how we found find out about the trustworthiness of, of, of the God who is there. Hebrews four verse twelve For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword. Chapter six talks about the goodness of the Word of God. Because the writer to the Hebrews wants us to know how reliable God's words are. They are worth trusting. They hold water. And so we can put our total trust in them. Or or, or as it puts it elsewhere in the Bible, we can live by faith, not by sight. Can you see that? I mean, Old Testament religion was by sight to some extent. There there are some incredible um, accounts of tourists coming to Jerusalem in the first century. And they describe the, the stunning beauty of of Herod's temple in in Jerusalem, the priests are wearing robes. You could see the blood of the sacrifices. You could see people going in and out of the presence of God. It was all visually stunning. And and time and time again through history, and you know this just through looking at church buildings in London, people have tried to recreate that sense of visual awe in in their in their church buildings. Um, a lot of churches they have a special sanctuary around the altar. Do you know that? You're not allowed to go, what they would call the altar, you're not allowed to go into that part of the church. Ornate buildings, incense, priests wearing robes. There are plenty of churches like that in London. And some people who lead those churches say that quite explicitly they're trying to recreate the, the sort of sense of awe that existed in the Old Testament temple the writers of Hebrews are saying you don't need any of those things. They were just shadows. You you no longer need to rely on the visual because faith is faith in God's promises. And, And that's why Hebrews 11 starts the way it does. Did you notice that? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, future, the conviction of things not seen, invisible. We live by faith, not by sight. And what reassures us of that? Well, the people who've lived like that. Like Abraham. Let me read from verse 8 again. Verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, as with him of the same promise. For, get this firsthand, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see what he got right? I mean, lots of people are moving out of Islington at the moment. I think it's the sort of post-pandemic thing and um, people are saying in Islington that finding a four-bedroom house in Devon or Kent with a garden is, is a total nightmare. I mean, it's, it's quite hard to get hold of them anymore. Uh, the most desirable place to move is in Epping, apparently in Essex, so a recent survey said. I'm sure a lot of people have come from London to live in a place like Winstable. You can imagine that, can't you? Working remotely, living the dream. And, and Abraham decided he was going to relocate, very fashionable. But he does so not knowing where he's going. That's, that's strange. Can you imagine the conversation with the neighbours? Um, Abraham, I saw you the for sale sign. You're going far? I've no idea. Says Abraham. Um, you have no idea. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm selling up shop because God told me to go and he said he'd make it clear. How do you feel about being in that position? Well, later on in, in verse 17, Abraham is on the verge of planting his knife into his son, of killing him. Can you imagine that? Why would, why would anyone do that? And a couple of people are sitting next to their dads looking nervous. Because Abraham believed the promise maker. He was acting by faith, not by sight. Yeah? He'd received the promise and he knew that God would bring about this great nation through him just like he promised him in, 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 in the book of Genesis even though he'd been called to murder his son through which it was supposed to happen. Now God doesn't ask us to do what Abraham did. Um, some of you will be very relieved about that. Um, I've got a son, I love him more than anything in the world. But the point is this. God's promises are reliable enough to act on, you see, even in radical ways. They're solid enough to take radical action on. You've got to believe that. Have a look at Sarah in verse 11. She's another good example. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, who had promised? Same words. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead, that's not very uh, complimentary, is it, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Can you imagine what Sarah looked like in the antenatal clinic, everyone sending on to care of the elderly? But God had made a promise and she believed it and so she took radical action on that basis. Even when it looked impossible, she believed God's word and the miracle happened. And you know, we have so much more to go on than Abraham and Sarah did. Um, Evidence of the faithfulness of the character of God all the way through the Old Testament. Promises kept. All the way through the New Testament, promises fulfilled. So we need to ask ourselves, do, do we trust the character of the promise maker and are we prepared to act on that basis? Um... I spoke to someone this week. He's still grieving over the sudden loss of his dad. His father died quite suddenly. And I asked him whether he was trusting God's promises. He said he was. The writer says that God's promises are unseen, but they are real. You don't need to go back to that temple and back to those priests. Live by faith, not by sight. It may lead you to do radical things. That God's character is dependable and His word is trustworthy. That's the first point. Faith which believes God's promises. But they're, they're promises principally which relate to the future. And that's the second point. Faith looks to God's future. Uh, you know, the more I approach middle age, well, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've already reached middle age, really. Um, I find I'm a little bit susceptible to nostalgia, so we grew up in the South coast uh, by the sea before I moved up to London. And it's tempting to look back on those times of nostalgia. You know I just remember the summer of '76, you know sunshine for three months, uh, walking across the South Downs, um, having picnics on the beach, um, all of that Sussex sunshine. Nostalgia. you know, the sun seemed to shine every summer. Abraham and Sarah become exiles in a foreign land and when they could no longer see the place from which they'd come it it wasn't that they were full of nostalgia for the place that they'd left. Do you notice that? They were full of longing for the country that was still ahead of them. Chapter 11 verse 15 If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city you know Abraham and and Sarah arrive in Canaan and it's not that they get a four bed house with a garden and a view of the sea they carry on living in their tent as do their family Isaac and Jacob but they weren't worried because they were looking forward to a city that had real foundations that was the center of gravity for them they were pressing forward to a better country a better city. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. Did you know that God could be ashamed of you? Well, he wasn't ashamed of them. They're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. A city designed and built by God. I, I know an architect who's, who's main interest is designing huge projects. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good enough for her to just sort of design a flat or design a house. She likes putting together sort of whole cities and sort of and sort of like the Barbican Centre would be her ideal sort of design project. Can you imagine a city designed and built by God? Can you imagine that? What would that be like? We know there's not going to be any any wars, any death, any broken relationships, any suffering, any pain, or any separation from, from our God. In fact he's going to wipe away tears from our eyes. That's what he promises. Can you imagine yourself in that city? It is yours if you trust God's promises. You belong in that city. It's your home, by God's grace. So don't overinvest here in the present. I read recently about a guy called Charles Dutton. I don't know whether you've heard of him. Um, at the age of 17, he killed someone, and he was committed to prison for manslaughter, given a lengthy sentence. But then later on in his life, he really rebuilt um, his his life and his career. He became a TV star, film actor. Uh, He was in the Alien franchise and various things. And then later on in his life, he was asked how he managed to make such a a radical transition between being a criminal in prison and then becoming a a successful film actor. And he talked about his time in prison and he said this. Unlike other prisoners, I never decorated my cell. Interesting, isn't it? I never decorated my cell. Don't overinvest here in the present. Invest in your future. It's your home. Just as we finish, um, you'll see that I've put on the handout a two by two box. This is a very, very poor the representation of that but if, if you've got that in front of you and, and you've got a pen handy then why don't you write across the top present, future and then write down the side earthly and heavenly it'll look a bit like this okay? earthly, heavenly, present, future and then let, let me ask you what some of your dreams are you know, when you're on the tube and, and, you, and you can't use your phone and you've read the Metro, what, what is it that you dream about? What do you think about? Where do you see yourself? Where, where do you feel that you most belong? What is the center of gravity for you in your life and your ambitions and your dreams? Um, as an individual? Maybe you dream about a family which doesn't argue all the time. Or, or maybe you just want to move to a bigger place present earthly. That's the box at the top left hand corner. Or maybe you think about the future and and things that you'd like um, in a little while. Maybe you'd like to retire to a thatched cottage in Kent with a a gravel driveway, double garage, an E-type, a big garden, two dogs. Perhaps you want to see your kids settle down one day. Future earthly. Or maybe, um, maybe you want to feel like God loves you. That's not a bad thing, is it? Maybe you want the experience of God. Present heavenly. I'm, I'm not saying at all that all those things are bad. But the person of faith longs for things... In the future heavenly box. That's the center of gravity for them. What they dream about. A future heavenly home. That's their anchor. That's their destination point. How about as a church? How many of your prayers and activities and budget. Is focused on the world to come. You can, you can sort of tell. A few things about a church culture. By the songs they sing. And where they direct their energies. What they think will help people. What they think evangelism means. It. It worries me that churches are talking so much more in terms of a, a therapeutic gospel, you know, where, where what is principally on offer is a present sense of purpose, a sort of present sense of peace, present sense of fulfillment, something that, that fills the hole that you have at the center of your being, that makes you feel better about yourself and better about your situation. Now, again, that's not wrong. God does give you a sense of purpose, But that's not the center of gravity for a Christian. People of faith are future obsessed. And that's why they live by faith, not by sight. Faith in God's word, faith in God's future. And they trust in what is most real, which is things they can't see. Let's stop there and pray. Shall we pray? Thank you, your promises are trustworthy, uh, that we know the things you tell us are true, and that what was once a shadow is now reality in in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that we would live by faith, not by sight. I pray that all of our hopes and dreams would be tied up with what is future and heavenly. And so we ask, Father, uh, that we would be certain of things not yet seen, that we would be people of faith